I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. So uh, my voice is mostly back uh, and uh, made it through the first service. So, uh, you know, I know that we have some people in our church uh, who run for exercise. Uh, There are others who are thankful to get out of the bed and be able to walk around the house, but um, I I, I know of a pastor who started um, running for exercise at the age of 35, bought some running shoes and started enjoying what he described as the smooth rhythms of long distance running. And soon he was competing in 10K races um, and then running a marathon once a year and he was uh, subscribing to and reading three different running magazines. Then he pulled a muscle and wasn't able to run for uh, several months. And he said during that time, the magazines were all over the house, but he never read any of them. Uh, But the moment he resumed running, he said he started reading the magazines again. And that's when he realized that, and he wrote this, reading was an extension of something I was a part of. I was reading for affirmation of the experience of running. I learned a few things along the way, but mostly it was to deepen my world of running. And if I wasn't running, there was nothing to deepen. So the parallel between reading scripture and what this guy experienced, I think, is, is uh, a pretty interesting parallel, maybe even striking. If I'm not living in active response, my life in active response to God, uh, then it, when I'm reading about his creation or I'm reading about the gospel or I'm reading about God's holiness, uh, it doesn't hold my interest for very long. So what does it mean to live in active response to God. Well, it includes regular communication with God uh, through prayer. It includes not only giving God requests, my requests, but I'm also listening to him. I'm receptive to, to God's leading, to his nudges in my life. What does he want me to do? How is he directing me? I'm attentive to wanting to learn God's word and obey God. And so living an active response to God is is having a commitment to bring my life in line with God's will. That's what I want to do. And so when we read scripture, of course it's important, vitally important, that we understand the context in which scripture is written and that we understand what it was saying to the people that it was written to. But what John is emphasizing here in this text is on your outline, the most important question isn't what does it mean, although that's important, but what can I obey? What am I doing to be obedient to God? It's like the runner reading his running magazines. Nothing will make scriptures come alive more than when we are being obedient to what we read, when we're living it out, when we're attempting to live it out. We don't live it out perfectly. Jesus actually said the same thing. In two passages that uh, you can remember easily because it's John 14, 15 and John 15, 14. They both say the same thing. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey me. Uh, You know, I had just become a Christian in high school 
And I was involved in sports. I was running track and I was playing football. And um, there was a, uh, I noticed after I became a Christian, there was a, a coach there that was actually not a very nice guy and had a pretty foul mouth. But I noticed he was wearing a ring that had a cross on it. And I said, wow, coach, what's the, the cross about? And he said, oh, I got that when I was in high school for memorizing 2,000 Bible verses. I was like, oh my goodness. Um, you know, God is not impressed with our knowledge. Uh, our goal is not to win a Bible trivia contest as we study the Bible. Uh, it's like what Jesus said in Luke. He said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I say? And so, that's what John is writing about here. He's saying, he's writing to a church that was being challenged by some false teaching called Gnosticism. And we can see hints of what the Gnostics believed by some of the things that John wrote. And you've got a list of them on your outline. Uh, a couple that we're gonna look at today in, in chapter two, verse four. Whoever says, I know him, that's what the Gnostics were saying, but does not do what he commands is a liar. <clears throat> or in chapter two, verse six. Uh, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. So let's read our passage, 1 John chapter 2, beginning at verse 3. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, Love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. So this is God's word. So notice how John uses the words know and truth. Words that we might associate with going deeper in our own walk with the Lord. Uh, what John does is he turns those words into behaviors. And so, on your outline, you, you have this. If you want to know if somebody's a real Christian, John says, don't just ask them what they believe, but also look at how they live. Look at how they live. How are they living their lives? In fact, John says, if someone claims to be a Christian, but they don't do what Christ says, then they're a liar. Liar? That's pretty strong. A pretty harsh way to say it, but to accuse someone of, of lying is serious. But that's how serious John is about demonstrating to others that we love Jesus by the way we live, by the way we act. And so remember, John is writing to the church. If a person claims to know God and doesn't live a life that reflects that, then John is saying that this is a person who will start to justify the sinful things they're doing. Uh, that will begin to undermine Christianity. So this person is a hypocrite. Uh, we said last week that in a sense we're all hypocrites because we all know the right thing to do usually and we don't always do the right thing. But we're trying. And this is a hypocrite who doesn't try. Um, it was Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, who wrote, only he who believes is obedient. Only he who is obedient believes. Because true belief will lead to obedience. That's what John's saying. So this is the moral test. John gives some, some tests in 1 John as to how we can know that we're a real Christian. 
And this is the moral test of someone, how is someone living their life? So both to love God and to know God is to obey God. That's the ideal. That's what, what, what we should be doing. Um, so knowing God and loving God are intimately connected ideas. In 1 John, we've said that 1 John uses the word know and the word love like 40 different times in the chapters of 1 John. And both knowing and loving God lead to obedience. That's what they should lead to, John says. So the first truth that we see here in verses three and four is don't miss the importance of the gospel's connection to obedience. John wants to underline how important this connection is to obedience. How can we tell if our faith is genuine? Because we're living it out. Uh, Verse three again, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. So look at how he uses the word know. We know intellectually, we know that we have come to know him, that we have a relationship with him. Uh, How do you know that you're a Christian? It's not the amount of knowledge you have, it's it's a relationship that you have because you have received Christ into your life. The Holy Spirit lives in your life. Someone said that knowing God is more like learning to play an instrument than it is like doing a calculus problem uh, where you're trying to figure out the problem. Uh, When you learn an instrument, you have to spend time, uh, daily time preferably, in, in investing in sitting down to practice regularly. And we've said this before, it's great to come here on Sundays and have a, 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 a spiritual meal together around the word, but it's even better. You can't live on that on one meal a week. You need to be spending time alone while, in, the, in the word and in prayer, talking with God, listening to God through his word. So back to verse three, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. You know, we might be a fan of somebody who's in the public eye. We might know all about them, but they don't know us. We feel like we could have a conversation with them and that they would, we'd be able to relate to them because we know all about them, but that's not knowing someone. Uh, like you know someone in your family, like you know even the people you're sitting next to in here. Which you may not know them well, but you may know them very well. Maybe you pray for them. That's the ideal. We should be praying for each other. And that's what happens when, we're, when we meet in smaller groups, which is important as well. Um, and so what does John want us to know? He wants us to know that we can have a real and intimate relationship with Jesus and be transformed by him. That's what, that's what we need. That's what we want. Uh, that's what a true Christian is. And as he is transforming us, the treasure of, the, of our assurance of salvation, if you will, is strengthened. Because John is really writing, we saw it in, in chapter five, verse 13, these things I write to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So that's what he's writing about. So it's in this sense that, and this is on your outline, obedience is an avenue of assurance. How can I be assured of my salvation? Because I can look at my life and I can say, wow, okay, I'm, I, I can see God transforming my life. And to obey Christ is not a burden. If, it, if it's a burden, it's, it's, it, it's my, it really what it is is my natural or supernatural response to my relationship with God, what God has done for me. John even says this later in his letter in chapter one, or in chapter five, verse three. 
He says, um, loving God means obeying his commands and these commands are not burdensome. And so we can say, if the Christian life is weighing you down, what John would say to you is that you're not living the real Christian life. And how do we know? Because God's commands aren't a burden. When obedience is driven by love, it loses the burden part of it. Just think of a mom who's caring for her child, her infant, newborn. A mother doesn't feed the child and change the child and comfort a baby because of a command. No, they're, they're doing it out of love. They're, you're talking about their infant, their child. Verse four says, whoever says I know him but does not do what he commands is a liar and the truth is not in that person. So if we're not doing what God asks us to do, then John says we can't claim to have a relationship with God. In other words, obedience reveals if our faith is genuine. So since that question is always going to be not how much we know about him, but how much Jesus has changed your life. Before we move on, I think it'd be good if we could just take a moment and not defend ourselves, but just before God say, God, am I, is my life reflecting you? Are you working in my life and changing me to become more Christ-like? That's his goal. And so think about that for your own life right now. What are the evidences that you can point to of a changed life? The second truth that we see in this passage is in verse five, and it's that obedience isn't a condition, but an indication that we know God. Verse five, but if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. So three key words in this verse, the word obey, the word love, and the word know. And those three words are intimately tied together, obeying God, knowing God, and loving God. When we're living a life of worship, and you know, I think of our time here on Sunday morning as a a time of corporate worship, so that we are inspired to go out and live a life of worship. Every every part of our lives should be what we're lifting up to God as worship to him. And as we live that life of worship, we will delight in God's commands, maybe for no other reason, and this is on your outline, that that we delight in the God who gives those commands. We love God for who he is. We want to know him. And so as we consistently obey God, our love for him grows and matures, as well as our love for others. John talks about that. He's gonna deal with that in chapter three. Uh, how our love, that's one of the tests, our love for other people, other believers. And so people will say to me sometimes, you know, God just feels so distant from me. And as I talk to people who say that to me, what it, it often comes down to, I find, is that on some level, people have cut themselves off from fellowship. That's usually the biggest thing. Um, Uh, C.S. Lewis says that people don't fall away because they change their theology. They fall away because they're out of fellowship. And the other thing is they're not in the word on their own. They're relying on what they hear from other people being in the word. They're not spending time talking with God 
Because if, if you are, if you're loving him, if you're his child, you want to grow in, a, in your knowledge of him, and that doesn't happen apart from prayer and the word, those things together. So these words continually come back in, in a circle. They, they feed each other. The more I know him, the more I love him. And the more I love him, the more I want to be obedient to him, which leads me to know him more and leads me to love him more and leads me to want to be more obedient. They just keep circling around each other. So those three words are so important. Knowing, loving, being obedient to God. Um, J.I. Packer wrote a book, Knowing God. Out of curiosity, show of hands, how many of you have read that book? Boy, there are some hands up and not enough. I hope you will all, that's such a great book to read. Um, I would highly recommend you reading it. But J.I. Packer, one of the things he says in the book is once you become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. How can we turn our knowledge about God into knowledge of God? The rule for doing this is simple but demanding. It is that we turn each truth that we learn about God into a matter for meditation <clears throat> before God, leading to prayer and praise to God. And then if you want to underline one, excuse me, one part of this quote, this last line, a little knowledge of God <clears throat> is worth more than a great deal of knowledge about him. A little knowledge of God is worth more than a great deal of knowledge about him. We're not out to win a trivia contest. We're out to know God. I think we could say the same thing happens in a godly marriage. The more a husband and wife grow to know each other, the more they love each other, the more they, the love they share with each other, the more they desire to know each other more. It, and it just goes that way. And so Dr. John Gottman is um, Jewish, but he is known even among Christian counselors as maybe the foremost authority on uh, marriage relationships, <clears throat> on relationships in general. And he says there is always more that you can learn about your spouse. Always more because they're learning and they're changing. And he calls these love maps. And in a sense, we have a love map with God. And we're talking about an infinite God, a holy God who is eternal. We are not eternal. We are finite. We can, we, there's so much that we can always learn more about God. Uh, Karl Barth, a theologian, wrote a, a series of books called The Church Dogmatics. On a shelf, they would take up about this much space, it, voluminous. Um, <clears throat> he was giving some lectures at Yale, and he asked the stu students, they had a question and answer time, and some students stood up and said, Dr. Barth, what's the most profound thing that you have ever learned in all your study of all that the church believes? And he was from Switzerland, had a thick German accent. And he paused a little bit and then he said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That was it. And we could spend the rest of our lives meditating on what that means. And that's what Dr. Bart was saying. Um, so there will forever be new aspects in Gottman's language, different love maps 
that we can learn about God through his word. So important to study the word and through prayer. So in just reflecting a little bit on what God's been teaching me, you know, what you need to become a Christian is grace plus nothing. And most of us don't have nothing. And I'm continually, and I've been examining my own life. What, Lord, I just want to come to you and, and trust your grace alone, nothing else. Most people want to bring a resume. Most people want to bring, uh, you know, something to God that they've, they've learned. They, they want to bring their recommendations, their morality, their, their financial giving. They want to bring something. We, we, we don't, it's, it's rare to have nothing when we come to God. But I've been learning the importance of just coming to him and, and, and making sure that I have nothing that I'm trying to add to my salvation. It's by grace alone. So are you getting to know God for who he is? Are you spending time with him? What is God teaching you about himself? Think about that. So the third truth that we see in these verses is that God's goal for us is to become like Jesus. Verse six, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. The word live in some of your translations is the word walk. That's what the Greek says actually. And think about what what it means to walk. Walking is a metaphor that we see often in the New Testament. Um, The apostle John uses it 11 different times. The Apostle Paul uses the metaphor of walking 32 different times. And walking is not a destination. It's a process. It's a movement. It speaks of choices we make as we are walking. Uh, Like repentance, the choice to repent from our sin. Our relationship with Jesus begins with repentance. And repentance is a a walking word. Why is it a walking word? Because uh, the definition of repentance is to change directions. We're walking one way and we do an about face and we start walking the other way. We're walking away from sin and we're walking toward God. So are you living a life of worship? And the follow-up to that and a part of that, the other side of the coin of that, is are you living a life of repentance before God? Confessing your sin before him and thanking him, praising him for his forgiveness in Jesus. God saved us that we might, though, be conformed to the image of his son. He's not done with us yet. He's doing all of that in each of us. And so he saved us that we might be conformed to the perfect image of his son. So on your outline, you have this. God chose us to bear the family likeness of his son. That's what it says in Romans 8, 29. It's like obeying Jesus and loving him. Abiding in Christ is the outgrowth of knowing him. So again, verse six, whoever claims to be, to live in him must live as Jesus did. And the words must live communicate our moral obligation before God. To live like Jesus lived. How do we do this? We keep our eyes focused on Jesus. It's like the author of Hebrews wrote in Hebrews 12, let us run the race that we have to run with patience. Our eyes fixed on Jesus, the source and the goal of our faith. And so remember, the theme of 1 John is is John repeating this as the gospel, 
it's, uh, the theme isn't unique to John. Jesus says this in, in John chapter 15. Uh, you've got it on your outline where Jesus says, remain in me and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine. And you cannot be fruitful unless you remain or abide in me. Yes, I am the vine, you are the branches, says Jesus. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can only do some things. That's not what it says. You can only do nothing apart from Jesus. Paul says the same thing in Ephesians chapter five. He says, be imitators of God as dearly loved children. And Peter, in 1 Peter 1.21, in fact, let's read that one out loud together. It's on your outline. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you should follow in his steps. You know, um, <clears throat> there's a, a book, a Christian book in the history of Christianity. It's, a, it, it's been a very important book called In His Steps by Charles Sheldon. Uh, again, show of hands, how many of you have read that book? In His Steps, not many. Uh, again, it's a book that I would encourage you to read. And I'll, I'll give you a, a little bit of it. I don't think it'll spoil the whole book, but the story is a little bit, um, uh, talks about an unusual event that happened on a Sunday morning in a, in a, a kind of a upscale traditional church. Uh, the morning service was, the, the pastor was in the middle of his sermon, when a shabbily dressed man uh, entered the door and walked down the center of the aisle. And uh, uh, the book talks about everybody's eyes were filled with judgment looking on this person as they came into the church. And he got in the middle of the aisle, <clears throat> the preacher stopped his sermon, and the man, this unknown visitor to everybody before that time spoke up and he said, I just need someone to love me and to take care of me. And then he died in the church. And on a Sunday morning a few weeks later, the pastor got up and, and he, uh, he confessed his, that he was ashamed of his own attitude toward that man when he came in the door. And um, as they were talking, many of the members stood up and confessed the same sin. And after some discussion, the people in the church decided to covenant together that before they did anything in their daily life from that point forward they would always ask the question what would Jesus do you know that bracelet that people wear with that's where it comes from it comes from this story well the entire community was impacted by the transformation of of this one church of the people in this church as they were asking themselves that question what would Jesus do so wristbands and bumper stickers aside, in essence, what, this is what John is asking us to do. Ask that question. But what is exactly does it mean? What does it look like for us in America today to live like Jesus lived? Um, I don't know if another author, Dallas Willard, if you know who that is, but um, Dallas Willard was talking about this in one of his books, and he said, I, I think a better question would be what would Jesus do if he were me? And he gives some examples of that. So he says, let's say that you're a delivery person. Ask yourself if Jesus were a delivery person, what kind of a delivery person would he be? 
Would he obey the rules of the road? Would he keep his car in safe operating condition? Would he stop to help other drivers and help other people along the way? How could he use his job to point people to the Lord? If Jesus were in middle management, what kind of a middle manager would he be? Would he talk behind his boss's back? Would he make unreasonable demands of people in his department? Would he, would he do the bare minimum? Would he pad his expense account? How could he be a witness for Christ as a middle manager? If Jesus were a parent, what kind of a parent would he be? Which TV shows and videos would he allow his kids to watch? How attentive would he be to his kids' health, to their homework, to their friends? How often would he read the Bible with them and pray with them? And would he ever threaten to throw them out of the car for not, for if they didn't stop fighting in the back seat? I don't think so. If Jesus were a student, what kind of a student would he be? How would he treat his friends? How would he treat those he doesn't know, especially the marginalized kids? How hard would he study? How hard would he practice? Which parties would he go to? Which conversations would he walk away from? Which conversations would he share Jesus? You get the idea. You think through your daily life and how Jesus would live it, your daily life, if he were you. Being a Christian isn't just a matter of believing what Jesus said. It's a matter of living like Jesus lived. John is saying that knowing and doing should go together. And this is a sign that they're together, that you're walking like Jesus walked. You can't know how, you would, how Jesus would live your life if you don't know how he lived his life. And so again, the importance of knowing Jesus' life and reading it in the scriptures. But if that studying and that praying doesn't make a difference in how you're living, you haven't really gone deeper at all. So I do wanna be clear about one last thing, and that is that all the gospel requires is repentance and faith, nothing else. And you might think after listening to this, you think, what about obedience? Does it require obedience? That's not what the gospel requires. That's what the gospel produces. If the gospel were to require obedience, then that would mean that we can be obedient apart from the person and work of Christ and that Jesus died for nothing and we know that's not the case. And so you have this on your outline, the gospel produces joyful obedience in us. And if we get these things mixed up, where we end up is legalism and moralism and a works righteousness and that's what the good news is really not. It's not that at all. And it does become burdensome. I'll just end with this. Ian Thomas in his book, Christ in Us, uh, said this, and this is perfect. If you right now are feeling discouraged, if you're feeling worn down for whatever reason, he says this, Christ gives you all <clears throat> of the overwhelming adequacy of all that he is right now for every step of the way and in, for every bend of the road. So we're inadequate, we're weak, what is Jesus' invitation to us? His invitation, <clears throat> I think, is best expressed in Matthew chapter 11 when he says this, come to me, all of you who are weary and overburdened, and I will give you rest. 
Put on my yoke and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So will you take Jesus up on his invitation to you? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that from our relationship with you comes joy and peace and righteousness. And all of those things that we desire to live our lives like Jesus, in spite of the pressures, in spite of whatever hard circumstances we might be going through, I pray that we would all put ourselves under your yoke with you and learn from you. Thank you, Lord, that you are perfecting your love in us. And we pray that we would grasp that more and more, what love for you really means, what it looks like, and cooperate with you in what you're doing in our lives. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand with me for our benediction. And you know, if God has spoken to you in some way, we're going to have some folks up front, like we always do, who will... Uh, be there to listen and to pray uh, with you. And uh, so please respond and, uh, and we'd love to have that opportunity. So this is from the Apostle John, but from the book of Revelation, chapter five. To him who sits on the throne and to the lamb who was slain, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. Please don't leave also without greeting the people around you. And again, we've got some folks up front, Heather and Ernie and others to with you.